Hello and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows, weekly cyber threat intelligence and information security podcast. My name is Chris and I'm happy to be joined by my colleagues Ivan and Nicole today. How are you doing guys? Doing good. Thanks for having me. I'm doing really great. Thanks for having me as well. Good stuff. Good to speak to you both as always. So it's been an interesting and busy week uh, as ever in the world of CTI. We've seen critical vulnerabilities affecting VMware virtualization software and Zyxel. I probably mispronounced that. We'll go with Zyxel firmware um, that both have been actively exploited by threat actors. And we're actually severe enough to the uh, US security watchdog CISA to actually issue a, a warning for federal agencies to patch this. Uh, within three weeks. So that's happened this week. Um, that's also coincided with attacks against the Tatsu WordPress plugin. Uh, so nothing really new there. It seems like every week there's some active exploitation against WordPress plugins. So make sure to, to patch your web infrastructure as always. And um, another really interesting story to surface this week, uh, I know you saw this one, Ivan, um, as related to the, the Thanos ransomware in which a French Venezuelan Physician was arrested after being identified as reportedly the ransomware's developer. So Thanos is used um, to allow users to concoct their own custom-made malware for, for essentially locking victims' files, extorting money for them, so the usual ransomware activity. Um, and the individual who was arrested, uh, Luis Zagala, provided uh, extensive guidance on how people can actually launch uh, ransomware affiliate programs and, and really get the, the maximum amount of uh, the ransom payments that they, they take from victims. So a really interesting case and, and I think demonstrating that kind of cyber criminality really isn't black and white. It's often a shade of grey uh, with many of these cyber criminals having legitimate professions uh, and otherwise appearing to be upstanding members of society. Uh, in this case, a, a really respected position as a, a medical professional uh, you guys had any thoughts on this one? This kind of took me by surprise. For me, I, f I feel like it's always a great time to check your personal biases. You know, um, I would have never assumed somebody uh, in the medical field as, as high as a, a physician would, would be behind something like this. But, you know, it, it's always that great time to, to, to determine, you know, what someone might may or may not be into and uh, maybe look for those signs as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we have a lot of these seasonal threat actors who, in fact, they're just kids, you know, probably less than like 14 years old. So you can't really judge and you don't really know who these people are behind the screen. And uh, they could be anybody. Absolutely. Uh, my thoughts immediately, I don't know whether this should be a, a thing I should say, but my thoughts immediately go to um, like TV series like Breaking Bad and Ozark, you know, you have like a legitimate looking professional, like a Walter White type character, you know, he works in your school, but he's doing, you know, drug drug uh, manufacturing in his own time. And, and obviously, in this case, it's uh, uh, a physician who's uh, apparently, apparently, we should say that, um, created a ransomware program. So I just thought it was a really, really interesting case uh, that, that came out this week. Um, we'll start this week's first segment by discussing something we don't usually talk about, and that's insider threats. Uh, with this week, a former database administrator for, and again, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Lian Asia, uh, a Chinese real estate brokerage giant, uh, being sentenced to seven years in prison for 
uh, reportedly logging into a corporate system and deleting the company's data. So, Nicole, can you provide us with an update on exactly what happened in this specific incident? So, the individual, his name is Han Bing, and he was a database administrator for the real estate brokerage. And he had logged in to their financial system. He deleted two database servers, or the data from two database servers and two application servers. The impact was massive. This company has thousands of employees, and this impacted the payroll. This impacted their operations and, and brought it basically to a halt. And it was uh, determined that he was actually continuously warning his employees about the security flaws in the company and felt like he was being ignored. And there was actually a big security project he was trying to lead that was denied. and that really just set him off and, and that's what led to, to this happening. That's really interesting. So that was his motivation that he was almost kind of overlooked for, a, I guess, a promotion or like a big, a big job that he, he thought the company needed to do. Um, and then because he was ignored, he decided to put those, those risks that he had obviously raised into practice and, and, you know, went and deleted the data. Um, we don't usually speak about insider threats with the, the same tempo as the likes of malware or you know, DDoS, et cetera. You know, realistically, how big, um, you know, is a risk um, to business from sort of insider threats? So an in insider can cause far more damage than a cyber attack originating from outside of the company, especially when it's like this, when it's an administrator, because they essentially have the keys to the kingdom and they're aware of the inner workings of the organization to include all of the flaws and they know, you know, how to do it. And it won't be odd if that's part of their, you know, regular day-to-day -day job. The other thing to keep in mind um, with insider threats, particularly like this one, is it's very personal attack. It's more, you know, a lot of times it's a, it's a very personal vendetta. There are times where they, they have different motivations, such as like financial, um, when they're dealing with hardships. But this was very personal, which means the damage is most likely going to be more significant than, you know, say a financially motivated uh, threat group externally. I think it's a really good point you just raised in that it's so difficult to, to kind of spot this activity because they are a legitimate user. And like you just alluded to, they have a, an, a fundamentally good understanding of the network and how to get around it. You know, where your, your critical assets are, you know, where are your crown jewels that, you know, you need to protect. Um, if you are a privileged user, then you're going to have access to those. Um, with that in mind, you know, what can companies do to minimize the risk from insider threats? Well, there's a few things that companies can do. I think number one is having a company culture um, and fostering an environment where employees feel like they're being heard and their ideas are being heard, not necessarily approved, but at least heard and validated. Um, as far as technical controls, implementing, you know, least privilege, which is basically ensuring that employees do not have access to anything that they don't need to perform their day-to-day -day operations. Data loss prevention tools is another great way to control and monitor data movement um, and identify when things are being moved or trying to be taken out of, out of the corporate environment. Um, and then there's also some 
heuristic tools as well, that's like alerting systems that you can set up. You know, if, if someone's logging in at 2 a.m. and that's not part of their daily schedule, those are red flags to start, you know, looking at um, as far as insider threats. With this one, you know, the red flags were there and that was, you know, that he was continuously feeling like he just wasn't being heard. Um, so it wasn't necessarily security controls that, you know, were involved, but potentially maybe backups could have, you know, prevented the the costly. I think they said it ended up being like $30,000 to uh, recover all of the data. Perhaps maybe having additional backups as well is something I would recommend. That's definitely a good thing. Um, I'm glad I had my computer on uh, mute then because I just knocked over my mic which probably wouldn't have sounded too great um yeah DLP was the one that I would would, would definitely flag up um you know they really kind of assist in kind of monitoring um and controlling that data movement and spotting suspicious activities um I, Ivan any thoughts from you on insider threats in general no I think Nicole covered it pretty well uh a lot of these ransomware groups also have gone after insiders I know that luck it they offered up to one million dollars to any insiders so threat actors are aware of insiders as well and they want to take advantage of them if there is a disgruntled employee who you know may be wanting to do some damage to the company or is willing to make some quick money and go to the dark side you know there's always a lot of options and a lot of these threat actors are very quick to exploit the that threat Absolutely. Um, one thing um, I did a, a PR request for for insiders this week, and one thing that I wanted to highlight as well is that you know, kind of certain geopolitical conditions can contribute towards this as well. So, obviously, in the last couple of years, we've had uh, the COVID pandemic and, and all the horrors that 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 resulted in. You know, including in addition to obviously lots of people coming sick and and obviously dying. Um, you know, we've had people, you know, had their, their working practices altered, uh, we've had people going on furlough, uh, even losing their positions. And that essentially could result in a, an increased risk from insider threats. With the ongoing Russia and Ukraine conflict as well, there's a, a potential for a, a flashpoint for someone who might not perhaps agree with their company's stance on that conflict. Uh, so these are all factors that, you know, could contribute towards that insider risk, I guess. Um, we'll now move on to um, Patch Tuesday, which I'm sure all of our listeners can attest to is, is always a massive pain every month, but uh, an important step nonetheless. Um, so Ivan, could you provide us with an update on this month's Patch Tuesday uh, and what horrors do our listeners have to be aware about? Yeah, so Microsoft, they released uh, the monthly Patch Tuesday on May 10th, as usual, as they do every month. Uh, but uh, this week, they actually came back and they warned customers that the patch from the May 10th had some issues. In particular, the patch, uh, the patch Tuesday update was causing some authentication uh, errors and, and failures, which were tied to the Windows Active Directory domain services. So users, they were, they were essentially getting, getting an error message that was telling them that there was a, an authentication issue due to credential due to a credential mismatch. So then Microsoft, they said that they are investigating the issue, but in the meantime, they have provided some workarounds uh, on their website, which include mapping certificates to a machine account in Active Directory. I see, I see. Um, yeah, often Patch Tuesday is immediately followed by a frantic pull of patches or a workaround to reverse buggy patches. Have there been any of this nature this month? Uh, so, you know, it's not uncommon for buggy patches to happen. Uh, we have seen this happen time and time again, and uh, this really reinforces 
the need for security professionals to be testing these patches before they apply them to other services. Uh, but uh, we have seen a lot of a lot of patches are trustworthy. You you may be able to recall back when Log4j was fixed, uh, the first time they fixed it, it actually introduced new vulnerability, and then they fixed it again, and, in, and then it introduced two new vulnerabilities. So does that mean that we shouldn't apply patches? Uh, no, we should still apply patches, but we need to be careful and we need to gauge all the risks and make sure that we know what we are installing in our systems. Yeah, absolutely. The example that comes to my mind was the, the Spectrum meltdown vulnerabilities from, God, what would it have been, 2017, I, I believe. And this was kind of a, a series of hardware vulnerabilities that could have been quite a, a big problem if they were ever exploited, but the, the chances of that ever happening were, were really, really low. Um, but they were serious nonetheless. Uh, and a lot of the updates that were released to kind of fix this actually, you know, as you just alluded, leveraged a bigger problem um, or in, in, indeed introduced new vulnerabilities as well. So I think, yeah, that point you just made there is that we absolutely should patch. It's one of the most important things that we do, um, but perhaps doing it on a testing environment first and making sure that they work before rolling them out, you know, en masse. Um, what's your experience with with patching and kind of vulnerability management uh, been like so far in your security careers, generally speaking? Uh, so thankfully, I haven't been left in charge of patching many systems, uh, but I have worked with clients who have gone through that. And I can tell you that patching can be a complicated process. Uh, every month we have new patches and we have to prioritize them carefully. We also have to make sure that when we are applying these patches, we're not breaking anything. And uh, a lot of people ask why companies have uh, vulnerable systems even weeks or months after pat uh, patches come out. And that's because uh, these organizations, some of them choose to accept some of that risk. And then some of just don't have the resources to patch in a timely manner. There's a lot of other factors that come into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not always as, as simple as just, oh, just get it done, just patch everything. You know, there's obviously business constraints and uh, resource problems and things of that nature. Personnel, you know, you don't always have it in place that you can kind of just um, update things on mass, you know, as and when you want. Um, Nicole, what's your thoughts on this one? So similar to Ivan, I've always been on the vendor side, so I haven't been in charge of patch management, um, but I have provided a lot of recommendations for clients like, hey, patch this and patch this and patch this. Um, and it used to be like, well, I don't know, it's it's insecure, just patch it. But since talking to a lot of engineers, I've learned that, you know, every network is different. Every network has their own dependencies and legacy systems. And there's a lot of times when you see an attack um, that there's, they're using software, you know, like Windows Vista or something ridiculous. And you're just like, why? Well, the reason a lot of times is because they have these, you know, legacy systems or proprietary systems that, have to run on that. They're not compatible with anything past that. And that particular thing is critical to um, business operations. So prioritization is very important. It's also super important to um, do some research on the vulnerabilities, especially when they're in the news and they have all the buzz. Like make sure that that is actually going to impact you um, and make sure you're aware of, of um, if your particular tool sets are involved and how does it need to be exploited? Is it easily exploited? Because there's a lot of times where these big vulnerabilities come out, but it's very difficult to exploit. So we don't actually see any concepts ever come out. So those, those all play into the uh, 
prioritization process and, and the, the risk management. I think you nailed it there. Yeah, the, the, the prioritization, you know, the, the triaging of these vulnerabilities, that's the thing that the companies need to do, isn't it? You know, working out what, what is the biggest problem uh, for them specifically, as opposed to kind of just going off a, um, a CVSS score or something of that nature. Uh, we did a big report on this last year. If you haven't seen it, then definitely check it out on vulnerability intelligence uh, and the importance of that. I'll just echo, you know, kind of what you were saying. Um, I guess b- because we are in a vendor, we can kind of sit in our ivory tower to a certain extent and just say, oh, well, these are things you definitely need to do. But, uh, you know, there's obviously constraints and resource problems that um, occur for individual companies. And it's not always as simple as, as just patch everything. Um, my experience has been really, really mixed. Um, I absolutely haven't you know, been in charge of uh, vulnerability management myself, but I have worked with some incredibly um, talented people um, from a vulnerability perspective. Um, I've seen a, a really kind of fairly, you know, positive, coordinated, proactive approach to vulnerability management in my time, in which you kind of had a, a central authority pretty much coordinating it across all portions of the business. Uh, but then on the other hand, I've seen, you know, the exact opposite where you have a, a rather disjointed approach where you've kind of got massive portions of the network which were, you know, um, not visible or perhaps less managed by the security team. Um, you know, and we had the problems of patching being done by system owners, which, you know, you know, while we as a security team, you know, could it could suggest or insist that you absolutely need to apply these patches, um, you know, that was uh, in the hands of a, a single person or a single point of failure. Um, and if there was a reason that they didn't want to do it, so some of the reasons that you alluded to there, uh, perhaps the system couldn't be restarted if it ran a process that couldn't be turned off. Uh, maybe they just didn't trust the patch. You know, they had some negative experiences in the past. Um, then they wouldn't do it. So, you know, I've I've definitely seen you know both sides of this coin, the good and the bad. Really, um, we'll move on to uh, our last item for today. And that's everybody's favorite topic. Okay, maybe just mine. Um, but that is, of course, the, the world of NFTs and cryptocurrency. Uh, so we've had a number of incidents in the past couple of weeks that have really highlighted the risk associated with NFTs and how threat actors are using this emerging technology as a conduit to facilitate a number of malicious campaigns. Um, so starting with Nicole, what have you observed recently associated with regards to NFTs? So uh, recently, Ferrari announced plans to uh, create NFTs based on um, different models of their cars. And some uh, threat actors took advantage of this and they um, hacked into a subdomain of the car manufacturer. It was compromised um, and they started posting NFT scams from that um, to try to make money. They ended up only making about $800 before Ferrari shut it down. Um, And then also there was a new Redline malware campaign. Redline is an information stealer, uh, similar to like a, a banking Trojan. And we saw that they were promoting a fake Binance NFT mystery box bot which is a mouthful, but basically a um, mystery box is a similar to like, if you go to the you know store and you buy one of those mystery toy boxes for your kids, same thing, but with NFTs, they essentially have uh, a, a group of NFT items and, and people buy them hoping that they're going to get something of value or, or that's rare. Um, 
And Binance does actually have mystery uh, boxes. But what was going on was the threat actors behind this campaign were going on YouTube and in the comment sections, they were saying that they have created this um, bot that will go out and like auto purchase these mystery boxes for users. Um, however, when people go to uh, this GitHub repository, it actually contains redline malware. So they're essentially infecting themselves with the malware. Um, it's not going to you know, be able to purchase any mystery boxes, unfortunately. Yeah, I did see those mystery box scam. They, they had a, a number of kind of YouTube videos supporting those as well, didn't they? I saw in that particular scam, um, which was really interesting. But we'll move on to the next question. Um, so obviously, at the moment, the cryptocurrency market um, in general is in you know pretty much a, a bit of a free fall. Um, the market's tanked and you know a lot of people have, have lost out on a huge amount of money. Um, how might threat actors exploit these times for their own ends? I'll pose that question to you, Ivan. Sure. So, you know, this is a very good opportunity for optimistic threat actors. Uh, they can make, you know, some quick money by taking advantage of this. Uh, they can take it because there's a lot of desperate users right now that lost a lot of money and uh, they're likely going to be very vulnerable to clicking on malicious links. And, you know, all these threat actors have to do is make up some fake stories related to the crypto market. Uh, and uh, it's highly likely that these users are going to be wanting to know more about it. They're going to be more to click on it, download things, sign up for things. So at this point, you know, some some users are so desperate that they're willing to sign up for anything uh, to make it to make their money back, and that leaves them very vulnerable to these types of social engineering attacks. Uh, another important thing to talk about is that not only regular people lost money, but also the threat actors lost a lot of money because a lot of the money that the threat actors have is stored in cryptocurrency. So it would be interesting to see how the threat actors react to all these huge losses. And it could possibly result in them wanting to launch a lot more cyber attacks to make that money back. Absolutely. Sometimes it's kind of difficult to, to spot which is a legitimate coin and which one's kind of a, um, you know, a meme coin or something that perhaps isn't legitimate. Um, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the, uh, the kind of infamous video of that Squid Games coin. Do you remember that one from... Was it last year or earlier this year? And it was a, a rug pull. There's kind of some live videos of people um, ha having their money, unfortunately, lost uh, as part of that scam. Um, what sort of advice can you both give to uh, to novice investors or people interested in the space on how to keep safe? So I think um, doing your research anytime before you invest in anything, do your research, look for reviews, look for any... Um, anyone saying anything negative, look at how new it is. Specifically with newer coins, um, I would be wary. I would be more prone to invest in, in something that's been more established and, and has a better reputation. That's definitely sound advice. And one that I uh, absolutely should take myself uh, as a, an investor in this space, um, going for the, the verified projects and things that you know have value. I mean, you wouldn't go to a restaurant, would you, unless you'd looked at the reviews? I don't know. Do you do that? I, I always look at the reviews on Google just to make sure that I'm going to a nice place. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I can also the why people do invest in these coins because it's upcoming in the market. It's new. Nobody knows about it. If they invest now, they think they can make a lot of money later. So there is an incentive to invest early so that you can make a lot of money. And that leaves these 
users vulnerable to falling for these types of scams. It's always trying to find that one coin that gives you that 200x. And even if you invest a small amount of money, if you get early, then you're the one who's going to reap the rewards of that. I absolutely see the appeal of, of kind of targeting altcoins or things that might not be quite so well established. Um, I, I really get that. They're trying to make money ultimately. I, I would just say like uh, Nicole alluded to, you know, doing your research is, is always the, the main thing. Um, only investing what you can afford to lose as well, because this is a, a risky space. And if you are investing in cryptocurrency or NFTs, then you know you should be prepared to accept that risk ultimately. Um, but that doesn't you know change the fact that you know what's happened in the last week is is pretty tragic. Um, a lot of people, um, particularly in UST and and those investing in Terra Luna as well, have really lost a lot of money. Um, so I'll move on to the last question. And, you know, obviously, I've probably made my position on, on kind of crypto uh, quite clear over the last last few months uh, on the podcast. But are NFTs and crypto something you'll be looking to invest in personally? You know, would you recommend it at, at perhaps an organizational level? I have a lot of friends who do invest in it that have made a ton of money, you know, put in $1,000 early on. It became 10000 eventually later on. Uh, but for me personally, I wouldn't invest in it because it's we can see that just how you can make a lot of money very quickly, you can also lose it very quickly. It's not a very stable market. It's very volatile and it has a lot of risks related to it. So although I think there, there's a lot of money to be made there, me personally, I like, I'm going to stay a little away from it. <laughs> Fair enough. I've got to bring you on side. What about you, Nicole? Uh, I, I'm pretty much the same. I know a lot of people um, who are in the space who, make a lot of money and and for them it's become more of a hobby you know they're, they're always looking for the dip is what they they say um but for nf as far as nfts i didn't really understand them a lot when they first came out however a lot of artists that i really love have moved into that space so i have actually been looking into it more um but we'll see how the market goes as far as like me personally uh investing Fair enough. Well, I think that's uh, definitely smart advice for, for all of our listeners. Um, definitely do your research. Um, but, you know, this is an emerging technology. You know, things are going to change. I don't think we've thrashed out, you know, the whole kind of use cases for, for NFTs. You know, so far at the moment, it's kind of, uh, it seems limited to sort of digital art, but I'm sure there's going to be, you know, lots of different use cases for this technology as we, we go forward into the future. Um, I'll end the podcast on that note uh, just by mentioning some of the blogs we've had this week. Um, Nicole, do you want to mention a little about the, the vulnerability blog that you've issued, I believe, to be going out today? Yes. Uh, the good, the bad, and the risky. And I did actually touch on um, the Patch Tuesday mishap and, and some of the recommendations that I would provide to clients or to just anyone in general that is in charge of patch management or vulnerability management and deals with that. Um, you know, craziness after Patch Tuesday or, or anything after like, you know, critical vulnerabilities and, and how to stay calm and, and really do that investigation and prioritization. Good stuff. Thank you. Uh, we also have uh, a fantastic blog that's been released this week on Mustang Panda. It's one of the, the prominent APT groups uh, out of China. And we also have our monthly What We're Reading Right Now blog, in which we have a number of the analysts uh, detail a, a piece or a publication that's taken their interest uh, and the sort of key factors and points to take away from that publication. Um, I'll end the podcast there. Uh, I'd just like to take this chance to thank both Nicole and Ivan for joining me today. 
Uh, thank you to our listeners as well for tuning in. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. <laughs>